This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. There are many words that came to define the world-altering year of 2020. Doom scrolling, social distancing, contact tracing. But as we wrap up 2021 and round the corner towards two years of the pandemic, many are pointing to burnout as the defining word of this year. As record numbers of people quit their jobs this year, burnout is one of the key reasons why. And it's not surprising. The pandemic spawned anxiety, loneliness, and heartbreak that millions of people are still processing. And on top of that, many people's jobs started demanding more of them. Essential workers, especially those in healthcare, are still putting in grueling hours under atrocious conditions. And even those of us lucky enough to have the option to work remotely have seen our hours increase as work bleeds into every facet of personal life and the fatigue of staring at a screen all day wears on all of us. In fact, in a recent survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 37% of people reported feeling anxious or depressed compared to just 11% in 2019 before the pandemic. What's more, by some estimates, half of Americans will experience an issue or significant symptoms of mental illness over their lifetime. Yet, While some form of health insurance has become a common benefit for many salaried positions, most plans have paltry, if any, mental health coverage, and mental health has long been considered a taboo topic in many workplaces. But now, more than ever, addressing mental health in the workplace has become a business imperative. Supporting employee mental wellness is good for company culture and productivity. By some estimates, for every $1 invested in supporting mental health in the workplace, there is a $4 payback. Joining me to discuss what mental health support should look like at work is Dr. Jessica Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a psychologist and the Global Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Care Lead at Modern Health. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kate. I'm excited for the conversation today. Yeah, it's it's an important one. And it's one, you know, interestingly, that I've just been having with my colleagues and friends, you know, on its own. I think it's something that's on a lot of people's minds, mm-hmm. you know, and speaking of that, we've been talking, you know, as a society, as as companies, we've been talking about mental health in a much more visible way, I feel like, than ever before, certainly, you know, in, in recent years. Why do you think that it's finally broke through? I think a part of it is, especially with all that our country has been through in the past 18 months to two years, people just can't keep it in anymore, right? So I think, interestingly, there's a generation change. Um, In the past, I have worked in schools. And so I think, like, the Gen Z generation would talk about mental health, mental well-being all of the time. Um, And that shows up. APA does something every year where they survey people, and they will that shows up repeatedly, like the generation difference. But now I think people are saying they're being influenced by the generation and saying like, I just literally can't keep it to myself. I can no longer continue to say I'm okay when I'm not feeling okay. And so I think that helps to normalize the conversation because as soon as you say it, you free other people to say it. And so people, oh, it's not just me. And so that helps to create a culture where people are talking about it more and more. Yeah, it's kind of like a good result of something horrible, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. we're finally at a breaking point where we're like, 
cutting the BS and not saying I'm fine when I'm not fine. And then as soon as you, you know, like you just hit on it, as soon as you say I'm not fine, like it's like, oh God, me either. Like I have the permission, you know, to say it. Yeah. Do you think the taboo about talking about mental health needs has lifted slightly? And, and, you know, you mentioned like generationally, do you feel like from some groups more than others, or is it a universal, like we're finally kind of okay talking about this now? I think we're getting okay. I will say, I don't know that we're fully okay. Um, Having the trends that I've seen over, you know, for example, the past 10 years I've been in the mental health field, I think we've definitely made progress. Um, The phrase that comes to mind, right, um, is, you know, when people say you have to laugh to keep from crying. And so one of the things that I have seen, for example, is like even on social media, the meme where people are saying when people send in an email and they say, I hope this message finds you well. And then all the memes that are like, this message does not find me well. And there's all these images and things like that. And I think those are the things that have normalized it because other people will see it and be like, yes, why are people saying, I hope you're doing well when clearly I'm not doing well. And those things help to help people to feel more comfortable talking about it. So it's not directly about mental health, but also just acknowledging I am not feeling okay. Um, and I think that's a part of the mental well-being conversation. I still think we have a long way to go to be directly and explicitly talking about mental health as much, but people are more comfortable saying, yeah, I'm not good right now. Yeah, it does feel like kind of the first step in, but it's, you know, just saying you're not okay is not kind of really getting to the heart of it and getting, you know, the, having those those more serious conversations. Right. I'm I'm wondering if, you know, you're listening to this podcast and you're a manager and you have this awareness that people are not okay, but you also want to respect your employees' privacy. Like, how can a manager offer support to an employees while respecting their privacy? Yeah, I think integrating it into their culture. So at Modern Health, um, one of the things that as employees, we challenge ourselves when we're talking about our products and our services is are we being tolerant? Are we being inclusive? Are we being integrative? And examples of that, integrative looks like when I come into a space, are there images that represent different social identities and different experiences on the wall, right? How do we start a meeting? What is kind of our, our normalized or socialized culture for meetings and things like that? And I think managers want to think about that. You Maybe you start a meeting every time and you just do a brief check-in. I know on my team, we start meetings with a quick meditation, no matter what the meeting. And sometimes it's just stretching to give people a sense of like, ooh, I didn't realize that I, like, I've been back to back or something like that. And so I think managers can start to think about how do we, maybe you know, in a meeting, we, if we don't do the check-in, how do I normalize even in my one-on-one just you know, telling people, hey, if you need to take a minute today, take a minute. That's not necessarily me asking someone and them having to tell me, but I'm normalizing like if you need the space to do it. So how are you integrating this into things that you're already doing in your day to day? I think managers do better when you do that versus trying to put someone on the spot or trying to say like, raise your hand if you're not feeling good, right? That doesn't feel good. Yeah. Um, And it also will feel different. And people really need routines right now to anchor them, especially if they're not feeling okay. So how can you integrate it in what you're already doing? It sounds like, you know, listening to that and and like kind of building that sort of environment would then hopefully make an employee who has a more serious concern feel like it's a safer place to talk about that. And it's not like coming out of the blue, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think about, because you, you said something, and I was just talking about this on a panel today. Um, and I like to also encourage managers, because I think it gives more freedom to not think of it as a safe space, a comfortable space. It's still a workplace, right? You are still bound to <laughs> responsibilities, you still, you, you don't maybe want to share everything. 
But how can we create a space where I'm comfortable talking about this, even if I don't completely feel safe talking about it? Because that takes the pressure off of how much do I need to manage for people's safety versus how much do I manage need to manage for someone to feel comfortable sharing in this moment? That's true. And that's kind of like creating the environment, you know, where you don't have to share everything. Like you don't have to give all the details because it's work. They're your boss. You know, you, you don't necessarily want to. And certainly, you know, maybe it's not appropriate, but that you feel comfortable enough saying like, here's my issue. And the you know, they won't pry more. You know, they won't, you know, they'll give you the space that you need sort of thing. Right. And, and I think as managers and leaders, we also want to respect autonomy and privacy. So can you create a space where somebody feels comfortable saying, I need to take the day off versus I need to tell you why I need to take the day off, what exactly is happening, all of those things. But a space where it's like, I need to take the day off and trusting that people are doing what they need to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, whenever we have these conversations, I think of a few years ago with the Supreme Court uh, nominations for Brett Kavanaugh and all of the very triggering things about sexual assault. And I it hit me and I thought, you know, if it's hitting me, it's probably hitting other people that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And this is the last thing you want to like say, look, I don't want to report on this story because I have a personal, you know, I'm a survivor. I have a person like something like last thing you want to talk to your manager about. So I just said, if you want to opt out of covering this news, just opt out of covering it and don't Mm -hmm. say anything to anybody. Just, you know, you don't have to be on because it's hard to like, okay, here's why, and I need to raise my hand, and now you're looking at me and thinking about me and, you know, whatever else. It's like, just give the option, no questions asked sometimes. Right. I think that's an excellent way of integrating and normalizing it, right? Like, hey, you don't have to share, opt out. And and trusting, I think that's the part, trusting that people will do what works for them. Um, because I think sometimes as leaders, we can make assumptions. Something happens in the world, and we're like, I need to do this for you. And in that case, there may be people who do feel uh, triggered, like, for example, who felt triggered with the sexual assault, but their coping is, I want to cover this because activism, we know, is a great coping skill. And so they might not have wanted to be told they couldn't cover it. So by giving them something like an opt-in, people get to choose what is best for me to protect my mental well-being today. Yeah, that's a great example, too, of, you know, like, you you can't make the decisions for other people. I think giving Mm -hmm. people autonomy obviously is good in a lot of other areas of work. And I think especially in in this too. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, since we are reading all these statistics about how many more people are suffering with, with mental illness issues and stress and anxiety and burnout right now, like, are there certain signs that colleagues or managers should look for with, with the people that they work with, if they're not speaking up, if they're concerned about somebody? I think one of the key things to look out for a great example is like, are people living in color or living in black and white? So you get to know your colleagues. So is somebody coming into a meeting feeling like excited and motivated in conversations, or does it feel like they're simply existing? I think that is one of the biggest, it's, it's easy to miss that because they're still showing up, they're still producing, they're still doing. But like, do you notice that, um, you know, clinically we call it like kind of a blunted or flat affect, like things just don't feel like they change, right? You could give really great news or really sad news and their, their face looks the same right? I think that is one thing to notice. How are people responding to things? Thinking about fatigue, how tired people are. We don't realize that fatigue is actually a part of a symptom of anxiety, depression, burnout, those things. When people are like, I'm sleeping more, I'm really tired, but I'm not doing more physically, right? So I think keeping an eye out for something like that. Something else to keep in mind is when you're having conversations with people, I I call it kind of context clues, listening clues. What are people sharing? Right? Are they talking about that they're having trouble sleeping, sleeping too much? 
are they noting, you know, I, I didn't realize I didn't eat today, right? Do things feel off from their routine? I think sometimes they're looking for big signs and those don't always come unless somebody feels like they're in a lot of distress. But some of the little signs can pop up and being able to track those and say, this feels different than how you you normally show up here at work. As you're saying all of those things, I'm thinking it's probably even more difficult in a remote work environment. I mean, is it is it something, you know, when it's remote work that you should be looking out for like a person who normally has their camera on is turning it off or there's is there like s- specific things that because a lot of those kind of visual clues are more difficult to gather when it's remote work, right? Mm-hmm. I think when it's remote work, you might not be able to pick up a clue. And I think that's when it's on leaders and managers to be able to just ask the questions. I think sometimes we get in our head about it. We feel uncomfortable. It's a little bit like grief, right? Um, When somebody has had a loss and they're grieving, we do things to make ourselves feel better. So we'll come up to someone and say, it's okay. They were young or I'm thinking about you or I'm so sorry to hear this. We're not actually asking the person. We're kind of doing the same thing too, right? We'll come into meetings and acknowledge. I know this has been a stressful year for everyone. Thank you. Like we're acknowledging, but we're not asking. I think in remote work environments, we need to actually ask, right? And depending on your culture, being able to do some anonymous surveys or being able to ask in the meeting, right? Um, you know, who who here might need to cut the meeting short a little bit? Who might need some time? Because it is going to be difficult to pick up on the signs. Um, But there's nothing wrong with asking. And you might be surprised by the question that you ask because you don't get to see them face to face every day. Yeah. And and I think that's a good point, too, of like allowing the questions to come in with in an anonymous survey or in a chat form. Mm -hmm. You know, I think always that like speaking up during a meeting is anxiety producing in the the best of circumstances for a lot of people. So certainly when it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, raise your hand, like you said earlier, you know, like raise your hand if you're not doing okay. It's like, um, yeah, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about like some of the things that managers can do, it kind of feels like the the elephant in the room around this is that you know, comprehensive mental health benefits are something that are lacking in a lot of employer health plans. Um, mm-hmm. And many therapists don't accept insurance. What are some practical ways that employers can add in some mental health benefits? Thinking about vendors. So, for example, Modern Health is a mental health vendor. We offer a benefit. I think one of the things that leaders and managers really need to tap into is being able to get a pulse on how important this benefit is that's different from what they already have. So for example, some people may say, well, we already offer EAP or we already offer an organization that offers like meditations, for example, but look at the data. Are people using that? Because you may be offering something that is not relevant to what your employees need. And so then thinking about, well, how do we offer this as a separate service? You know, we refer to this as mental health parity. I ask people, what does your health insurance look like? And if it's really robust, then my question is, well, how come you feel like your mental health benefits should not be as just as robust? We think about the mind-body experience, um, but also thinking about, well, you know, it makes me laugh sometimes because people, we think mental health is very separate, but I'm like, your head and your heart and all of these other things are still a part of your body. So it's really not this separate thing. So why do we treat it so separately? And so I think um, leaders and managers can really start looking at vendors and thinking about what can we put into place to be preventative, to be proactive, um, and really being able to see if you have a pulse in your employees. A little bit related to the question you just asked was also something people can do remotely is when you're having a meeting, how engaged are people, right? Like you can tell, we've all been in meetings where we like tell a joke and it falls flat. You're like, this wouldn't have fallen flat six months ago. 
or you're asking for volunteers and no one's volunteering. Like, does it feel like in your meeting, people are not engaged? Because that could be a sign that they're needing support. Um, and when people are not tapped into the pulse of how their employees normally work, they're going to miss that and not think about how they can support and be proactive for their employees. Yeah. And I mean, it's obviously it's one of those things where it's gotten worse over the last two years. You know, like we kind of expected everybody to feel anxious and stressed out in the beginning of the pandemic. But like this is not a way to be operating two years later and, mm-hmm. you know, looking for those signs and, and and looking at how it should be. And and you also make a great point about health insurance versus mental health care. It's just it's baffling in the same way to me that like, why is dental different than health? Like your teeth are part of your body. And like, as you said, like, why is your brain is part of your body? And it it affects I mean, you could probably go on about this forever, right? Like it affects your physical health in a, in a huge way. It seems it's baffling that it's like a separate topic, a separate thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, how you can find these issues, how, you know, why it's important to offer the benefit. I think, you know, one of the the barriers is the, the kind of the stigma around it. What can um, employees or employers do to address the stigma of taking advantage of the benefit if you do have it? Absolutely. We talked a little bit before about how managers and leaders can be more integrative in their language and kind of normalizing, socializing mental health language. From the employee side, I think we also have to understand we need to meet people where they are. If you offer a benefit and no one uses it, it's not helpful. You have to understand that for many communities, um, having a mental health benefit is new, right? And so it's not always stigma. I think sometimes we got to think about they didn't have access. It's under-resourced. You don't know what you don't know. And so how do people promote this, right? And so it's not just that we offer the benefit. How are you sharing it so your employees know what it is, that they know it's available? Being able to offer a tutorial or something to walk them through what it is. Everyone is familiar with medical insurance, medical benefits, dental benefits. They are less aware of the mental health benefits. And so I think being able to acknowledge, hey, we offer things that also might take your culture into consideration. That's going to be really important for many people. Or we offer benefits that, um, for example, at Modern Health, we offer circles. So people can check it out for free and kind of say, hey, let me try a community circle. But people need to be encouraged to try those things. Or letting people know your family can join you. Through this benefit, you might have couples therapy or something else. And I think that will reduce some of the barrier and people may feel more comfortable. But also leaders and managers talking about using the benefits. Hey, I checked out this course through my digital content. That then normalizes like, oh, I don't have to have something challenging to use it. I think that's the last thing I will say is we talk about mental well-being often when people are in distress or in crisis and normalizing that mental well-being is a spectrum. You can be proactive. You can not actively have anything going on with you right now and still want to say, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to know things. And so normalizing that people can use their benefits, even if they don't feel like they're struggling right now, that there may be something like, let's talk about imposter syndrome, or let's talk about managing stress or things like that. So it doesn't feel like I can't use this benefit because I don't feel like I'm struggling that much. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great thing to point out. Both those aspects of of one, it doesn't you don't have to, you know, be in crisis to to benefit from it. And two, the role of leaders in in leading by example and in, in showing, you know, we write so much about the importance of, you know, being an emotionally intelligent leader, but also, you know, a leader who shows vulnerability. And I think, yeah, just saying like, I've used this. I've, you know, I had this thing. I've, you know, we, some things I feel like managers feel uh, more comfortable talking about, but the, the kind of the more 
vulnerable you can get with, you know, this is something I've used and I found it really, you know, beneficial and kind of just leaving it at that, I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Checking out, encouraging people to say, hey, I tried this mindfulness exercise this week. You should try it. Um, Those are things that help reduce what we consider stigma. And people are like, oh, I don't have to have a diagnosis to see a therapist or a coach or to use this content. I actually might just want to learn more about it. And I think that is what reduces stigma. And then your employees might use the benefit you're offering because they see that it's a culture. It's not we're just offering it, we're using it, and we encourage you to, to do the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other area that I want to ask you about because, you know, of your expertise in it, we and we've talked on this show a lot before about the emotional cost of things like microaggressions and code switching and, you know, ideas around culture fit and the importance of being inclusive and equitable workplaces is a huge part of employees' mental well-being. And, you know, as somebody who's both a psychologist and a DEI leader, can you break down any, I know you touched on this a little bit in the beginning when you talked about, like, do you feel included in your workplace? Mm-hmm. But can you break down just kind of how critical it is that the work uh, in the area of DEI are not being talked enough kind of in the way that it relates to mental health and like how the two relate to each other? Absolutely. Um, this is, you know, forgive me, I might end up going off on a tangent. This is a, <laughs> a topic I get passionate about because I believe you cannot talk about mental health and not talk about culture and social identity. You cannot separate the two, right? And for many people, you know, at Modern Health, we call it DEIB. We add the belonging, right? And I'm like, mental health is really a new frontier in DEI, DEIB work because it's a new way of understanding. Um, the example I give is when we think about microaggressions, people know microaggressions are not good. Um, and so people will say, you know, we, we want to have trainings of microaggressions. It's not good. It, people might say it's mean, but I'm like, let's deep dive into how it influences mental health because it does, right? And the example I give to people that um, help understand is thinking about a mosquito bite. Several years ago, I might date myself a little bit, but when we were all kind of thinking about the Zika virus, it was a mosquito bite. We are used to mosquitoes, but then there was a heightened awareness, like one of the mosquitoes could carry Zika, which could have a deep effect on you, on our health, right? It could really harm us, but you don't know which mosquito. That is microaggression. Microaggressions, you don't know which one could cause really deep um, psychological harm. And so then you find that people are always on their guard and we call that hypervigilance. They're trying to protect themselves. So they're trying to protect themselves from like the mosquito bite, right? But what that may come off as is people are like, oh, they're really irritable because that hypervigilance causes you to always be on guard. And so when that's happening, it's this heightened sense of awareness that is exhausting. So if you have an employee who is at work who feels like they're experiencing microaggressions all the time at work, they're also more likely to feel burnt out earlier. They're exhausted, this heightened sense of needing to protect yourself all the time. Our bodies are not conditioned to be there. So then you're going to also think about anxiety. Now they're worried about which spaces might it, I experience it in? Where do I need to avoid? How is this working out? You might also see start to see symptoms of depression, right? They're having trouble sleeping because they're thinking about it a lot. Um, their mood is changing. You'll see some of the irritability. And that could be addressed if there's more understanding about how microaggressions harm people. So then when HR leaders are thinking about, well, how do we help people to understand why microaggressions are important? It's like, it's not just that it's bad, it is literally harming your colleague. And that gives people a different awareness. And if we can reduce the number of microaggressions this person is experiencing, we're also going to directly influence their mental health, right? Um, And there was a study I cannot think of the name um, that was done a few years ago that actually found that when employees feel like they belong, it has a direct effect on their anxiety and their depression. It reduces it. 
And microaggressions, reducing that is a way of helping people to feel like you belong here, right? I'm not going to misgender you. I am not going to not acknowledge that you're a parent. I'm not going to make a joke that has racial or ethnic implications. People feel like they belong, then their anxiety is lowered, their depression is lowered. And so really understanding how those two things come together. Oh, thank you so much for that. That's really clearly drawing the line between like why DE and I and B work is so crucial and the physical and mental impacts. And and I think, you know, exactly the way you described it really helps, uh, will help people, you know, see how the two are connected. And then I want to just draw the other line, which is kind of the the one that, you know, <laughs> we kind of need to talk about, you know, as a, as a business publication. All of these things sound, you know, you could be listening and like, this sounds like the right thing to do, the good thing to do. But really, when you come down to it, it's also like the prudent business bottom line thing to do. Can you talk a little bit about what the cost of mental illness and, you know, ignoring these issues is on the workplace, especially, you know, we're we're now we're talking all the time about the great resignation and and the the impacts of that kind of draw the line, you know, between the next and worst step if if these issues are ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's two pieces to it. So over the summer, uh, Modern Health, we commissioned a, a study by Forrester Consulting. And so they basically helped us to see or have some data to back up that when leaders offered mental health support through a benefit, they noticed a jump in productivity. So often about 67% of the people that we surveyed reported an improvement in productivity because they were offering a mental health benefit. Um, and so others said that they, when you asked on the flip side, employees said they would feel more productive if the benefit was asked, right? So when you think about even from a business standpoint, retaining people, but then if you think about recruiting, as I mentioned, Gen Z, especially millennials, they've been talking about mental health. I mean, I was working in high school about five years ago and we were offering it in the school and we had youth all the time. It was very normalized. So that's a generation that's coming into the workforce right now they're going to be looking for those benefits. So like, I mean, I've been talking about therapy for five, six years, and you mean to tell me there's nothing available? So if you also want to be able to recruit in a way that feels competitive, you need to offer people what they're looking for. And this is a generation that will look for it, including um, even in colleges and universities. You know, I've worked at a, a major university before, and they that is included as their benefit as a student. So if I'm already getting free mental health care and I'm used to having it, and then I come to an employer, and they say they don't have it, I'm going to be looking for an employee that's going to continue what I'm already getting, right? So they're not no longer even looking at it as like a perk. This is a standard benefit that I'm expecting because I have been getting it. So on the recruitment side for businesses and on the retaining, it influences who you're getting, the quality of candidates you can compete for, but also how you're retaining and the product productivity level of your employees. Yeah, I, I think there's there's no more succinct, underlined way to to say how important this this issue is from the top down. Um, Dr. Jessica Jackson, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Before we go, we have one last segment for you on today's show, and it comes from Fastco Works in partnership with McKinsey & Company. In this custom segment, Fastco Works correspondent Ted Brown talks with Brooke Weddle, partner at McKinsey & Company, about how we take the speed and innovation we achieved during COVID and lock it in by design for sustained performance. So, Brooke, we developed a lot of different work strategies during COVID. What are some structurally beneficial ones that you've seen? How do we make those beneficial ones more permanent as we go forward? Yeah, well, I think a lot of companies are 
considering how to lock in speed by design versus speed in response to some of the adrenaline uh, that was fueling um, a lot of the, the different strategies during the pandemic. Um, and so now organizations structurally are looking at layers in their company. So one thing that we've seen is how do you zero in on the doers and deciders and start to eliminate interpreters. So people who are translating messages between those doers and deciders, how can you go to the source of insight more quickly? We've seen critical processes being redesigned in really imaginative ways. So clean sheeting uh, those processes, again, inspired by some of the speed that was gained during the pandemic. And then I, I also have seen organizations looking at social networking, understanding where are the bridge builders from the perspective of employee nodes, and how do I optimize those to get communication and information sharing sped up, again, by design, but inspired by the pandemic. We've all heard the term, you know, this could have been an email, right? And a lot of meetings that are sort of became superfluous, we were trying to replace them one-to-one. -one. But it seems like everyone realized at some point that meetings aren't a one-size-fits-all strategy. How are people reimagining what meetings should be and how they should be approached? HBR did has actually produced a number of articles on this, and they found that dysfunctional meeting uh, behaviors uh, lead to lower levels of market share, innovation, uh, and employee uh, employment stability. So just to make sure that everyone kind of understands the case for change, this is a major unlock for a lot of organizations. In terms of what we've seen in terms of reimagining meetings, many companies are looking at re-engineering them in an end-to-end -end way. So what does that mean? It means segmenting the kinds of meetings you're having based on their purpose. And then the other thing that companies are doing in terms of re-engineering are identifying clear roles. So we're in a meeting together. I'm the decision making maker. You are the deep expert who is who I need to consult as a way to get to a better decision. Radical transparency would be a third. There are some companies where you are actually giving feedback in terms of the meeting's effectiveness, right? So you get that feedback as someone who has set that meeting and you are of course incentivized probably to hold better meetings as a result. Um, and then finally, a lot of companies are actually trying to drive more continuous improvement. So we've seen some stand-up nerve centers that are specifically designed to take uh, you know, different views of meetings, so filming people in meetings and giving them feedback and creating kind of a center of excellence around that for the organization. You're talking about radical things becoming reality. And I did want to talk about one radical thing or yeah. two radical things, actually. And there's been a lot of talk about the four-day work week and more flexible hybrid work schedules. Do the ways we've adapted and evolved to work during COVID make those more viable possibilities? I think they do. I, I think we've seen that productivity and flexibility don't need to be working against each other. We've seen employees require new capabilities to be successful in these flexible uh, work arrangements. So in our research, we've found that employees are specifically asking for virtual collaboration tools. Uh, a listening strategy that gets their feedback on an ongoing basis, employee feedback, and helps fine tune companies' policies and the way in which managers are approaching these new flexible models. So I think there's a possibility for a lot of innovation 
I do think that the, the companies that are making the most progress on this front, though, are actually taking this test and learn approach and being pretty iterative, even with this highly communicative approach in terms of trying out those new models, getting the feedback in and continually refining over time. How do you think technology plays a role in facilitating those more structural changes that we developed during COVID? The big insight is interestingly probably around how to use the technology well. Assuming you have a level playing field of some minimal layer of technology um, and people having access to that, how do you help managers and leaders understand how to use the right tool when? When is it a Zoom call? When is it a phone call? When is it actually an in-person meeting? And I don't think managers are necessarily equipped to knowing how to do that, right? So we've seen um, some companies actually appoint new roles to coaching managers, to building their capabilities and how to make these choices to best leverage technology to drive to specific outcomes, including you know, increased productivity, innovation, decision-making. How do we train that next generation to internalize those new ways of working? And then how do we retrain current workforces to do the same? It's a very sort of two-pronged question. There's these two uh, extremes of the equation. So I wanted your input on that. I think first and foremost, for both of those segments, you need to think through what are the different roles and the jobs and how to tailor approach to them. And how do you tailor also an approach to the people doing it, right? And and so that could be generational. It could have to do also with the, the kind of job it is. Are we talking about engineers? Are we talking about designers? Are we talking about frontline factory workers, right? So the approach will vary. And then there has to be role modeling as well. So training done without leaders also embracing those new capabilities and frankly, mindsets in many cases are not going to go a long way. And our research shows this very clearly that some leaders are in fact causing a little bit of cognitive cognitive dissonance, right? In terms of requiring a new capability, but not actually role modeling it themselves. So I think this is a really important element to getting maximum mileage out of those efforts. How do you think organizations will change based on the pandemic era transformations we've seen? And how do you take these good habits that people have developed using technology, using these new ways of working, and graph them to this emerging hybrid work style that is going to be the future? We're seeing it emerge already. For sure. I, I truly think this is a very exciting time for leaders and for organizations to rethink how they want to run the place and do small experiments to try to figure out how to shape that future. I think the companies that are doing the best in terms of turning the the great resignation into the great attraction, in terms of really strengthening their employee value proposition, are essentially out learning their competition. And the last thing I'll say is fundamentally in this hybrid world, the role of the office will change. Um, we like to say that the office is the new offsite, and that is simply to convey the idea that the office is now another tool that we can use to drive to business outcomes. So how can you reimagine interactions in the office and then interactions out of the office uh, in, a, in a fundamental way to try to get to better business outcomes and embrace your purpose at the same time as an organization? Brooke, thank you so much for the time. Thank you.
And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Does your employer offer mental health benefits? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Thank you.